Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah, to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning, we're continuing our series on hope for the discouraged, a time when it's easy to get so fixed on our circumstances that we lose sight of the good care of our God for his people in every age. And this morning, we're going to consider uh, this idea, hope when a nation crumbles. Hope when a nation crumbles from the book of Nehemiah. As we walk through this passage together, we'll see this truth. Our God reigns over every nation in every age. Our God reigns over every nation in every age. There are many nations, yet one king of the universe. In your Bibles now, the book of Nehemiah just before Psalms, you should find Nehemiah, a handful of books back there. We'll begin in Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Hislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Well, it was in 722 BC that the northern kingdom of Israel fell. Israel was founded first through Saul and then David and David's son Solomon. By the time you reach the third generation of David's line, Rehoboam, Rehoboam was a, a proud, wicked man. And under his rule, the people rebelled and you split off. So the northern kingdom of 10 tribes fell in 722 BC. It was some 136 years later that 586, the southern kingdom falls. Well, this led to a period of exile for God's people. Even today, the Jews are largely scattered throughout the world, and from 586 B.C. until 1948, they existed only in a scattered form. Now, of course, we have the nation-state of Israel as well. Well, when 
people in the ancient times would conquer a nation, they would often take indigenous people and move them out to another area and bring in exiles from another land and place them there. Well, this is what happened in Israel. To do this would decrease your chances of a rebellion, remove kind of the native Israelites and bring in all these outsiders. So by this time, by the time Nehemiah is here, the people are scattered all over the place. Well, Nehemiah is the third of three different returns to Israel. It was in, uh, let me see here, lost track, 538 B.C. that Persia came in and conquered Babylon. Daniel chapter 5 tells us about this. When the Babylonian Empire falls to Persia, some 80 years later in 458 B.C., a second return was led under a priest named Ezra, the book before Nehemiah in our Bibles. And here we find ourselves in 445 B.C., at Nehemiah. Nehemiah leads the third return to Israel. Now, Nehemiah is no one special. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a king. He's an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Israelite who's a servant in the king's household. Now, he happens to be a cupbearer, and a cupbearer is a position of trust. It's not like Daniel. Daniel was a trusted advisor in the kingdom of Persia. Nehemiah isn't a trusted advisor. He's just a servant, but because of his position of service, he has access to the king. He's basically the head waiter in the royal household. We find Nehemiah in a moment of catastrophic failure. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book because they describe different aspects of these returns to Jerusalem. They're 13 years apart, and yet they kind of describe one continuous act in the history of Israel. When we meet Nehemiah, he's a thousand miles away from Jerusalem in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa is the Charleston of Persia. Now, if you don't know what I mean, it is hellishly hot in the summer. In fact, Susa during the summer would reach, reach often some 140 degrees Fahrenheit, which made it a terrible place during the summer. In fact, uh, one ancient writer tells us that a snake that would dare to cross the road in the summer would be roasted before it would make it all the way across. You can identify this if you've been in Charleston in August. But in the winter, on the other hand, it was a prime place, and so it was a getaway for rulers in the winter. So Nehemiah has traveled with the king's court to Susa, the citadel. And they're there, and as they're there in the middle of winter, Nehemiah asks a visitor about his home country and the people who are living there, and he gets this report, verse 3. The remnant is in great trouble and shame. The wall broken down, gates destroyed by fire. In Genesis chapter 34, we've got an interesting story about Jacob and his children. A Canaanite named Shechem assaults Jacob's daughter Dinah and then asks for her hand in marriage. And, and Jacob's sons, when they hear this request, they respond by saying, we can't do this thing, for that would be a disgrace to us. That word disgrace the shame of that, it's the same word that we find here describing the city of Jerusalem. It's in a state of disgrace, a state of shame. Ezra tells us in Ezra chapter 4 about all kinds of opposition that God's people received as they attempted to rebuild the temple and the city. They're trying to dig their way out of the destruction, but they're not doing it in a neutral vacuum where nothing else is going on around them. They, they have this monumental task of rebuilding the walls of the city, of rebuilding the temple, and yet around them, there is opposition. 
The people of the land, many of whom have been brought in as outsiders, are there to harass them. They first harass Ezra and the builders, and then Ezra, and they keep, keep building, keep building. So then they get political, and they write a letter to Washington, actually, to Persia, to King Artaxerxes, and say, these people aren't trying to restore their dignity. They're planning a rebellion. And when the king hears these words, he puts the building to stop. Well, it's likely that this cease and desist order, stop building the walls, is the occasion that leads to the news that reaches Nehemiah. It's probable that people in Jerusalem have sent word back now and said, hey, help us out here. And when Nehemiah reaches, or when this word reaches Nehemiah, he's brokenhearted. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. You ever have one of those times in life where you know about something, but then you're brought face to face with it and it becomes something altogether different? I remember several years ago, there was an NFL star who assaulted his girlfriend in an elevator. People heard about it and said, oh, that's not good. But then video came out. And when you saw the video, it was so horrific that the guy never played in the NFL again because it was so terrible. Somehow when you were brought face to face with the reality of what he had done, you knew how awful it was. This is one of those moments for Nehemiah. Jerusalem is some 981 miles away. He's a thousand miles away, but he's going to travel those thousand miles because he's been brought face to face with this terrible news. Now, there are moments when God's people suffer unjustly. The apostles, they were cast in prison for preaching the gospel. But everything that the Jews suffer here is because of their sin. Micah chapter 3 tells us that the leaders and prophets of Israel were so grossly sinful that not only did they sin, they hate what's good and love what's evil. Because of this, God promised that Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. So this destruction isn't an accident. It's a judgment promised by God. A result of failure so long, so pervasive, after so many warnings, that now the entire nation has crumbled. One domino after another domino after another domino until now there's a line of destruction. Nothing left. Jerusalem deserves this. Jerusalem deserves everything she gets. But it doesn't change the fact that it hurts. And when Nehemiah hears this, he's devastated. So how is it that he responds with humble repentance? Verses 4 through 7. Now we can read through these verses in just a few minutes, and it's easy to imagine that this period of repentance is brief, like our repentance often is. But verse 4 tells us that his period of repentance lasts for days. And we have good reason from the word to believe that it actually lasts for months. If you look at Nehemiah 1 verse 1, the news comes in the month of Hislev. And chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that he actually goes to the king in the month of Nisan. These Hebrew months are equivalent to our late fall, November, December, and our early spring, March, April. So it's likely that Nehemiah is repenting before the Lord for a period of three, four, possibly five months. This period of grieving, fasting, praying, repenting. 
So what does humble repentance look like? Nehemiah recognizes the character of God. First, he recognizes God's greatness. Verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Before Nehemiah asks God for anything, he recognizes who God is. And he recognizes that while God has the power to do anything, he is also the God of the universe. So he comes humbly before him. Have you ever been in a moment where you experienced something so powerful that it took your breath away? You've heard a clap of thunder so close over your head that it froze you. Or you've been in your house during a storm and you've heard the freight train of the wind outside your house and you in this moment began to get a sense of the fact that there is an awesome power in the universe and you are not it. This is the great and awesome God. And when we approach the throne of God, we approach this great and awesome God. But Nehemiah also claims God's faithfulness. God's character is marked by absolute faithfulness to his word. And in Nehemiah's appeal to the Lord, he appeals to this faithful character. Verse 5, God is great and awesome, but he keeps covenant in steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. As we come before the great and awesome God, we also come before a God who never has and never will break a single promise. Not one word of all that God has proclaimed will fail. His word will come to pass. So as we come before God, we can appeal to him, to his character. This is exactly what Nehemiah does. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. So Nehemiah comes, he says, God, you are awesome, but you are also faithful. And what is it that he prays? He honestly acknowledges sin. Nehemiah has a great need. God is the only one powerful enough to meet this need, but he also understands that until he is humble and clean before God, God isn't obligated to hear him. Because God shows his steadfast love to whom? To those who keep his commandments. But he promises judgment to those who reject his word. So Nehemiah is wrecked before the Lord. Not just about Israel's sin, but about his sin. The sin in his heart, in his house. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. It's not just the state of Israel's land that disturbs him. It's the state of Israel's heart that breaks his heart. The last verse here in chapter 1, Nehemiah is a what? A cup bearer. And yet this ordinary household servant now acts as priests, priest and intercedes before God for all the people. I love this because in this moment, Nehemiah is in anticipation of what is coming, the great and coming day when all of God's people are priests in the kingdom of God and can go to God boldly. But he doesn't leave sin theoretically out there somewhere. He brings it home in verse 6. Even I and my father's house have sinned. You see, there's a difference between acknowledging sin generally. Oh yeah, I've sinned. And acknowledging personal sin specifically. 
being broken before the Lord about our sin. You see, true repentance recognizes that we, we are culpable before the Lord. Not them out there. It's not all those people out there. It's me. The way that Paul put it, I am the chief of sinners. The way that Jesus put it is, look out for the beam in your own eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's. And here's where the great risk comes in. God is obligated to hear those who keep his word, but he's not obligated to hear those who don't. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. But even in this moment, Nehemiah claims God's promises. He appeals to God's word and God's character. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. God did that. God has been faithful to his word. But then he appeals to yet another promise, verse 9. But, the Lord says, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are scattered to the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. The same sort of promise that we find in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, and then I'll heal their land. Brothers and sisters, this isn't a promise for America or any other earthly nation. It's a promise for God's people. Yet even in claiming God's promises, we must plead God's mercy. Everything leading up to verse 11 is a warm-up for Nehemiah's basic request pleading for mercy. O Lord, let your ear be attentive. Give success to your servant. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah asked for three things. Listen to me. Make me successful and give me mercy. And ironically, it's this last request that's the key to everything else. Because everything that Nehemiah and his people will experience is something they don't deserve. They don't deserve mercy. But Nehemiah, in spite of the fact that neither he nor his people deserve it, pleads for mercy from God through the king. So he's going to experience mercy from a human being, from a human ruler, a profane man. But ultimately he knows the source of all mercy is God himself. So Nehemiah submits to the great and awesome God and pleads for mercy. But he doesn't stop there. The Lord answers his prayer. The king will send Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, Nehemiah demonstrates practical wisdom. Now, we don't have time to track every detail throughout the rest of the book. We're going to do a little quick overview here because it's important. So if you flip a couple chapters over and look at chapter 4, we're just going to look at a couple things here. By this time, the work has made some progress. They're, They're rebuilding the walls. But like Ezra... While God is working through his people in Nehemiah, opposition arises. Look at me in Nehemiah 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So what did God's people do? We prayed to God and set a guard as a protection. They prayed and set a guard. 
few verses later, Nehemiah 4, 16, from that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held shields, spears, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. It's hard to get work done like this. And this is such a good picture of the Christian life. We pray and we trust and we lean into the sovereign goodness of the great and awesome God who rules all things. And yet we also have to live with practical wisdom. They took up their weapons with the other hand. The wall's finished. The people gather together. And Ezra and Nehemiah get together. And Ezra the priest reads from the book of Moses. And God's people renew their covenant with the Lord. Nehemiah 8 verse 8. They read from the book from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You see, God's work in God's people leads to a return, a renewal to our commitment to God's word. And this leads them to remember God's mercy in delivering them from Egypt, the Passover. It leads them to celebrate the Feast of Booths when they confess their sins like Nehemiah with fasting and sackcloth. Then they renew their covenant. They rededicate themselves to the Lord. Nehemiah 9 verse 38, we make a firm covenant in writing. Nehemiah 10, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. You see, the work of repentance always leads to renewed devotion. And the final section of Nehemiah highlights the way this renewed fervor for worshiping God teases its way out into the rest of life. There's word-driven reform. So Nehemiah closes out chapters 11, 12, and 13 with reforms to their worship. The people rededicate themselves to, the, to God. And the final words of this entire book are also a prayer. Remember me, Nehemiah says. Oh my God, remember me for good. Well, I wrote this sermon before this election. All cards on the table here. So it wasn't written in light of who would win or not win or who won or not won, no matter what you think happened. You see, as God's people, there are too many times we allow our political views to shape the way we understand God's word rather than allowing God's word to shape the way we view our political moment. And for God's people, this ought not to be so. So what we're trying to do is, is just understand God's wisdom regardless of what happens out there in any election. Now, my sense is, again, not knowing what would happen or what would be the case this morning we walked in here, is that people would either feel like the world has ended. Life as we know it has ended. Pandemic, nothing. This is our problem. Or that God had once again smiled on America. So, how do God's people respond in a moment of catastrophic national failure? Well, clearly, model humble repentance. Nehemiah, he's humble about the sin of the nation and his own sin. It seems to me that among Christians, there's far too much hand-wringing over the sin of our nation and far too little humbling of ourselves before the Lord about 
our sin. About how the church has drifted from submission to God's word as supreme. We're yelling across the back fence at our neighbor about the rusty car in their backyard, and meanwhile, our ceiling is caving in. We feel more in common with non-Christians who share our politics than we do with Christians who don't share our politics. I'm not talking about things on which God's word is clear. Infanticide is murder no matter what euphemism you put on it. Murder, or sorry, it's murder, but marriage between one man, one woman, God's defined these things for us. Religious liberty is a real issue coming under real attack. But a lot of Christians decry identity politics and yet identify by our politics. This ought not to be. So where do we go for our identity? We anchor our identity in Christ and don't let go. Identity is a struggle for everybody at some point. I mean, it it just is. I mean, the people uh, who do best with identity are children, young children in loving homes. But you don't see three-year-old kids walking around, what is the meaning of life? Have I been a failure? Has everything I've done been for nothing? They're just not struggling with that because they're just secure, resting in the love in their home. At some point, though, the bliss of early childhood fades into elementary school, and then the insecurities of middle school, junior high, high school. And after high school, you have career identity crisis, midlife identity crisis. We don't call it an identity crisis, but you reach the end of life, and you begin to ask yourself, like, what have you done with your life? And, like, we're just faced with this identity crisis at every stage of life. I mean, even the most confident people in the world are insecure in some area. So when we use the term midlife crisis, we mean identity crisis. So a lady who spent more than 20 years working hard sees her children leave the nest and wonders, what next? Has has this all been pointless? A man looks around, he's 48 years old and didn't change the world like he thought he would change the world and wonders... What happened to all those dreams I had when I was young and 18? I mean, for a teen, young adult, it can just be a harsh comment online or an unkindly spoken word can send you into tailspin and introspection and depression. It just takes a harshly spoken word to shatter our world. You see, identity is a, com- is a combination of understanding who we are and our framework for understanding who we are. It's not just who we are, it's how we understand how we fit in with the world around us. When you can be a person who succeeds in almost every area of life, and yet you know you failed in your marriage, and so you feel like a failure in every area of life. Or on the flip side, you could be the kind of person who fails in almost every area of life, uh, who, who, who fails in almost every area of life, but you succeed in one. You fail as a dad. You fail as a husband. You fail as a friend. But you succeed at work. You're 55, and you made it, and you feel like you're a success. You see, our identity is a combination of who we are and how we understand who we are relative to everything around us. We must 
identify ourselves primarily as children of God, secure in his love and his care through Jesus Christ. The gospel becomes the primary orienting reality of our lives. You see, all these other things, parent, employee, spouse, child, student, friend, if those are the primary orienting realities in our lives, we will struggle with our identity because we weren't created to identify by those things. We're created to be children of a living creator, God. And we can only understand who we are loved by a heavenly father, declared righteous through the perfectly lived life and sacrificial death of Jesus through faith in Christ. You see, a right orientation to life comes from being rightly oriented to God through Christ. And then being rightly oriented to others as God reconciles us to one another in Christ. You see, like Nehemiah, we must acknowledge that we are sinners. We must humbly repent of our sin, acknowledging that Jesus is our only hope. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? Thirdly, we must lean into the faithfulness of Christ as we plead with God. Now, there's a significant difference between Nehemiah's prayer and our prayer. Nehemiah is justified by the sacrifice of Christ just as anyone is who is a child of God. But Christ hasn't yet come. Hebrews 4 tells us that the coming of Christ changes how we approach God. Since then, we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us then with confidence come boldly before the throne of grace. You see, Nehemiah comes before God and there's no one who's gone before him. Oh, he's coming, but he hasn't come yet. But we sit here on the other side of history looking back and Jesus has come. And in his coming, he has completely changed the way we relate to God. We don't go to anyone else and say, hey, could you talk to my dad for me? Could you talk to the big guy upstairs, the king of heaven? Could you talk to him for me? No, Jesus coming as our priest changes the way we relate to God. We go to him directly, fearlessly, boldly, confidently. When I come home, I walk in the door, and it's not uncommon for two people to attach themselves to my legs. And when those people are wrapping themselves, this is never Liz, just, just to be clear, it's not, I'm not speaking of Liz. But when they attach themselves to me, it's often accompanied by a request. Dad, can you read me a book? Dad, can I have a piece of gum? Dad, can we play soccer? Dad, can, dad, dad, dad. There's this eagerness. There's this fearlessness. There's confidence. There's boldness. There's impudence almost born out of that relationship. You see, if you walked in the door of my house... And one of my kids walked up to you and grabbed you around the leg and said, could I have a piece of gum? I'd say, hold on there. You're not recognizing the nature of this relationship. There's a, we need a little distance, a little decorum, a little respect here. But when you're God's child, you can run to the great and awesome God, throw your arms around his leg and say, dad, listen to me. Dad, would you hear me? Dad, I need help. 
And our Father longs to hear the prayers of His children. There's nothing that makes a father happier than having his children cling to him in love. And when Jesus passed through the heavens, he opened this kind of access for us to God. We pray to the great and awesome God of the universe, like Nehemiah did, but we don't pray to him out there. We pray to him like this. He has come to us in love through Christ. We can confidently go to him in prayer. So we lean into Christ. We lean into the faithfulness of Christ. We can be bold, fearless, confident, even impudent. We can grab a hold of the legs of our Heavenly Father and beg Him for mercy. And He must hear us because He has said that He would and because Jesus has gone before us. Fourthly, commit to grace-fueled, white-hot spirituality. It's been a number of years ago Uh, Now, I've read the book twice, but I remember the first time I was reading through the book Lone Survivor. So half of the book is about a Navy SEAL operation, which at the time was the greatest loss of life in Navy SEAL history. It's since been surpassed. Made a movie about it with Mark Wahlberg later. Book's better than the movie, just free commercial there. But reading through the first half of the book is all about Navy SEAL training. And one thing that happens in Navy SEAL training is not everyone makes it. It's a story of training, but it's also a story about people falling off along the way. And a class of dozens gets down to the end, and it's just a few. If you haven't seen it yet, open your eyes. You will see it more and more. It's happening around us in the church. The so-called casual Christian, cultural Christian, is increasingly just a non-Christian. Pulsers call them the nuns. In my parents' generation, in my grandparents' generation, it shows itself in people who walk away from church but say they're not walking away from Jesus. Increasingly in my generation and in coming generations, we walk away from Jesus as well. Why hold on to Christ if we're not going to hold on to the church that Christ loves and gave himself for? The cultural Christianity of our parents has given birth to non-Christians. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Pursue God with your whole heart, with your whole life. The greatest threat to our world today isn't a virus. The greatest threat to our world today isn't a political party. It's that people created in the image of God are dying without Christ and entering eternity not knowing Jesus. And their greatest need is to hear that they don't have to enter that eternity without Christ. And our greatest mission is to tell them that this is true. Our most urgent goal in life is people filled with the good news of Jesus telling people going to hell that they don't have to. They can turn from their sin and receive Christ by faith. But the great and awesome God who reigned in Nehemiah's day still reigns. Remember 
our great and awesome God still reigns. President Donald Trump, God still reigns. President Joe Biden, God still reigns. No matter who the president is, we know who our king is. And he is king of kings and lord of lords. Proverbs 21, our God holds the king's heart in his hand. Isaiah 45, our God forms light and creates darkness. Job 42, our God can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Lamentations 3, our God speaks and it comes to pass and it can't come to pass unless he commands it. Colossians 1, our God is before all things and him all things hold together. Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns, on his robe and on his name, on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our God is the eternal King. Our king reigns, and our king is coming back. It doesn't matter who the president is. We know who our king is. So let's take a moment now and approach this king, confidently, boldly, yet humbly responding to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.